0: a series called um, Revive and uh, it's always good I don't update my computer and then it wants me to install something right now that means it'll go off on me but uh, we are on a a series that we are we are calling Revive and uh, with the premise of this with the premise that uh, our wandering hearts have a propensity to wander. As individual believers and as a church, we're prone to wander really from from the will of God. And uh, at the same time, there is a God who loves us and is absolutely faithful to us, as we're going to talk about today. And He's so faithful to us, He draws us back to Himself. And He takes those two conditions. They the driftedness of man and the covenant commitment of God, and you have this thing called revival. Now, the idea of revival is is to recover, to recover some things that were lost, to go back to some roots and to re-examine, As Paul said, examine yourself whether you're in the faith. Paul said that to the Corinthians, examine yourself whether you're in the faith. So periodic examinations of my heart and periodic examinations of your heart are absolutely necessary in the Christian walk. David said it this way, Lord, cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. So, in other words, he also said, search me and, and examine my heart and show me if there's any anxiety, any sin, anything in me that needs to change. So, periodic examinations are absolutely important because we have a propensity to drift. Now, what I'm not saying is that we re- we revive back to maybe old methodology okay so we're not we're not you know just anything was culturally acceptable in 1985 that's what we got to go back to okay we're not calling back let's go back to the 1950s of Ozzy and harriet and leave it to beaver and the good old days of mayberry rfd okay we're, we're not going back to methodology we're not going back to try to fit that culture into our modern culture, but we are needing to get reoriented to this thing called the will of God, where we're radically touched by God, aligned with God, passionate for God, and we got to examine ourselves in this. Same time, I don't want to pass on to you maybe what God's dealing with me, and I I'll open with I'll be open, very open with you as a brother in Christ that God's dealing with me about some few areas of my life that are it's a very very deep thing. And so I, I don't want to make sure whatever I'm going through I'm passing that on to you. But as a pastor, I am deeply concerned about the church of Jesus. At the same time, I'm very optimistic. So we, I want to talk today about this. It is our time. I don't want to say that. It is our time. And uh, my scripture to this is Habakkuk 3.2. We read it last week. And I want to go back to it again. Habakkuk, as I said to you last week, is praying this prayer when the when the armies of Babylon are coming upon the what's called the Southern Kingdom, the Kingdom of Judah, and they're gonna, it's it's gonna be bad. And uh, he's praying, he's praying this prayer in the midst of this, and he says, "Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds." Now, come on, he said, I, I heard of your fame." And I stand in awe of your deeds. The United States of America has had six, even prior, including prior to the American Revolution, has had six major movements or revivals in the history of this nation. The first being the the Great Awakening, prior to the American Revolution, that hit, funny and sad at the same time, that it hit the United States of America and Britain at the same time. And the same revivalists, who were used in America were the same revivalists used in England. That People like John and Charles Wesley, people like George Whitefield, people like Jonathan Edwards. Incredible move of the Holy Spirit and uh, conversion of thousands of people coming to Christ. I've said this story so many times to you again, but I'll repeat it. John Wesley in one of his journals said this, I went to St. Thomas at noon, they wouldn't let me in. went to St. Mark's at one, they wouldn't let me in. Two o'clock, I went to the town square and 10,000 came. Okay, it was a great move of the spirit of God. Thousands of people got saved. And our, our nation is interesting. Just give you a cultural view of the history of our nation, we've always had a tension between us moving in a deistic, humanistic way and having revival in the grassroots of the people. That has been the history of the United States since its very beginning, and it hasn't changed. When I took a sociology class on American history, when I was in college, the Jesus people movement was going on at that particular time. And so at the same time, we had a huge science movement and we had a huge Jesus movement at the, going on at the same time. That's the history of our nation. It's wheat and tares, it's, it's unbelief, and it's great faith all at the same time. So don't lose heart. But uh, that was a great. After the American Revolution, we, we kind of settled in our own movement as a nation. And we basically slid out of that revival in a huge way. Christians were hiding down in basement classrooms and at Harvard and Yale, which used to be theolo- theological universities teaching ministers, and yet they were scared for their own lives. But then came what was known as the Second Great Awakening. Out of that came things which was the famous Cambridge, Kentucky revival, where preachers would preach like three at a time at the same time, and guys in their wagons by thousands just fallen on their face before God it was it was wild thousands of people got saved and out of that was birthed the great revivalist by the name of Charles Finney that, that that preached all through the upper states of where new york it was called the burnover states and 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 he, they say that he led 500,000 people to Christ and uh, his commitments were like 80 85% of the people who committed their Christ didn't walk away and then, kind of, we waned again. But there was another revival. A lot of people don't know about prior to the American Civil War. It was called the Prayer Revival. It took place in the 1850s, especially in New York City. And uh, prior to that, and then, of course after that, the American Revolution. I mean, the American Civil War took place. And a lot of people don't realize that that uh, both troops were in decrepit conditions spiritually. But what happened by the end of the war, the Union Army had a million Bibles basically handed out to soldiers. A million Bibles were distributed amongst the Union Army. And on the South Side, the whole army of Northern Virginia, they said, was converted to Christ, the whole army of Northern Virginia. And so there was this huge revival. A lot of the people you read, like those old-time guys that you read about, a lot of those dead guys that we read today were chaplains in both armies. And so there was this great revival. And of course, we kind of went to rebuild the nation, kind of got a little lax again. And then God started breathing Again, and one of the things that took place in the late 19th century was the first missionary launch from the United States and from Britain to recapture the Great Commission and, and, and uh, that Jesus gave us in Matthew 28. And the really modern missions started in that movement. And then we come into the 1900s in that movement, and we had things like the Great Welsh Revival. And uh, everyone thinks Azusa Street's great, but there were other revivals going on during that time. There was a church in Paducah, Kentucky, where the pastor had to follow up on a thousand new converts, and he was so exhausted he dropped dead. Okay, he just he just gave out because it was just so much so much harvest work. The guy, poor guy, dropped dead trying to keep up with a thousand new converts. So what would we do if we got a thousand new converts at City Harvest Church? I mean, you need to pray for the pastoral staff because we all have to be involved in this harvesting, harvesting thing. And then of course. World War One, World War II, that's pretty atrocious. If you if you just calculate the millions of life, civilian, military, holocaust, the the, the carnage of life combined in World War One and World War II. And now it's nineteen forty-eight, and you're thinking, What do we do? You're talking about trying to recapture an optimistic view of life. It was hard. I remember being in grade school in 1960, 61, 62. We talked all the time, the conversation on the on the playground about a nuclear bomb hitting us. I mean, that was a common conversation when I was a six, seven-year-old kid. I remember when the Cuban Missile Crisis came, I, I watched the TV, I got really scared. I said, Mom, I don't want to die. And mom, with her great words of wisdom, said, Bob, we all have to die sometime. OK, so. <laughs> but, but in the midst of all that, all of a sudden, 1948, some things happened. Bill Bright, Campus Crusade for Christ. Billy Graham began to rise up. William Branham, Oral Roberts, Jack Coe, A.A. Allen, the great healing movement of the tent meetings where signs and wonders not seen since the first century were all of a sudden beginning to manifest. And then the great movement of the latter rain movement back in the late 40s, and then that just kind of just thrusted the church into the 60s, and then there was a great move, not only among the hippies, but among the denominational churches of the United States and around the world, who got renewed by the Holy Spirit and got revitalized, became radical followers of Jesus. And then we've kind of like, hit a wall. Jack Hayford preached a sermon, Where Have All the Flowers Gone? Talking about a wave of revival that went back out and receded out into the ocean. It was a classic sermon. And we've been trying to find ourselves as a church. The church has been trying to find itself in this. But the prayer here is a prayer that I believe that we should all possess. He goes on to say, Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day and our time. I want you to say that with me. Repeat them in our day and our time. Can we say that together? Repeat them in our day and our time. I want you to, would you stand to your feet with me? For 60 seconds. Would you just pray that prayer with me for us and for the nation, for the church of the United States? I'm talking about God's people here. Come on, in our day, in our time, Lord. We're going to lift up your voice. In our day, in our time. Lord God, will you repeat these deeds? Would you repeat them again? In this time, in this place. Lord, repeat them in me. Repeat them in the church. Repeat them. Lord God, in every church in our city, repeat them in every church in our nation. Repeat them in our day. Lord, we're praying in the name of Jesus. Bring us back to the Word. Revive our hearts. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, in our day and in our time. Lord, we thank you. Make them known. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Praying with me that way, you know. He says, "Lord, in our time, make them known in wrath. Remember mercy, mercy." I'm an optimist, really. I really am. And the reason that I'm an optimist, especially an optimist about revivals, is this: is that God is faithful to revive. So, Bobby, are you really saying that, that we that we need an adjustment? Yes. I'm really saying that. Are you saying you think you might need an adjustment? Yes. Are you saying you think maybe I, speaking of you, need an adjustment? Yes. You really think the church in America needs an adjustment? Yes. I think it needs a real good Holy Spirit chiropractor. I really believe that. Very concerned. This is not something I just got a whim here in the last few weeks. This is something that I've concern and carried my heart. Now, what happens to me is I get to work with every aspect of the church of Jesus like probably no one else in this room. So I got a little bit of an advantage point on things I shouldn't share publicly that I have privy information to know. But we need, we need to get revived. We need to get revived. Now, one of the great revival scriptures comes out of Isaiah 35, verse 3 through 10. This is, this is a, really a global last days end times and we call it eschatological global prophecy this isn't about Israel coming back from Assyria or Judah coming back from Babylon if you know your Old Testament history during that time because you go to Isaiah 34 it's a global thing where God will come and bring justice to the nations this is a messianic prophecy prophecy But it has has the language of revival in it. It says this, Strengthen the, the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. You'll see the same language by the Apostle Paul used in the 12th chapter of Hebrews trying to revive the Hebrew Christians back to Christ. And they say to those with fearful hearts, and we don't know what they're fearful of in this context, Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. Everyone, I'm going to to have you say a lot of things to me today. Everyone, say this with me: Your God will come. Your God will come. In other words, yes, but God is going to come. The great hope of the church is God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you, not pouncing on you, but he's coming to readjust things. He's coming to judge the enemy. He's coming to do spiritual warfare. He's coming to, to, to bring heaven on earth. He's come to bring love where there's hate. He's come to bring life where there's destruction. He's coming. He's coming. That means, this, that means when I'm weak and I'm feeble hands and not steady knees, I, I need to be revived. You ever been like weak because you maybe you've been staining from food or limited on food and you just find your blood sugar's low and you just kind of have a you just kind of eat something and and uh, it just, like, revives you. He's just like, whoa, I just feel, like, well, 100% better. I got energy all over the place. Well, just put that in a spiritual dynamic where he wants to revive us. Then it says, then, then the eyes, then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer. For so far, I, I see the ministry of Jesus. I see the man in Acts chapter 3 at the gate of beautiful that Peter said, I don't have money, but I have the name of Jesus. Rise up and walk, and he goes jumping and leaping. Okay, this is messianic. This is descriptive of the ministry of Jesus in the kingdom of God. When God comes, and the, the mute to tongue shout for joy. Come on, that's, that's the ministry, the restoration ministry of Jesus Christ. Notice this, water will gush forth in the wilderness, Think of wilderness where there's not a whole lot of water. It's dry. Streams in the desert. The burning sand, ooh, that's a great picture, will become a pool. I don't go swimming in burning sand. I will if there's water just at the edge of that burning sand. But you just don't sit. Oh, we're going to go sunbathe out in the Mojave Desert where there's no water. Okay, I'm just going to sit out there and roast with my one liter bottle. Come on, there's refreshing coming. Thirsty ground, bubbling springs, and the haunts. Now, that's a kind of a unique word. It's not like haunted like demons. No, a haunt is something that's visited continually. The place, the dry place where jackals once lay. It was visited frequently because it was, there was no life. Grass and reeds, and papyrus will grow. So it, it speaks of this ministry of restoration, of God restoring. Then it goes on. And a highway will be there highway will be there and it will be called the way of holiness it will be for those who walk on that way the thing that revival produces is that it produces holiness and the thing that revival requires is that it requires holiness then he goes on to say the unclean will not journey on it Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. Only the redeemed will walk there, and the Lord and those the Lord has rescued will return. There is a condition for the environment by which God will work. This is why John the Baptist came on the scene before Jesus came. Because there, even with the Son of God manifesting Himself among them, there had to be a preparation for that work to take place, for Him to work. It's the way of holiness. Now, holiness is, I'm going to talk about in two weeks, I'm going to talk about what it's not. And two things it's not, I'll give you two words, legalism and trivialism. And we'll be talking about what those two words mean. It's not those things. Holiness is sometimes something even radically different than the way we picture it. We're not talking about going back to old you know, holiness or old Pentecostal rules of do's and don'ts and taste not and touch not and handle not. We're talking about a different type of holiness. Holiness that has to deal with our hearts. But it's the requirement where God will hang out and where God will work. And then it goes on to say here, they will enter Zion with singing and everlasting joy will crown their heads. Some of you old timers, way back in the 60s and 70s, remember the song, Therefore the Redeemed of the Lord. How many old timers remember that? Oh, there you go. We would sing it, but I think we would cause a generation gap here. <laughs> but it was great when I was first a Christian, you know. Crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. There's a, there's a blessing, church. There's a blessing that comes with repentance and there's a blessing that comes with true. Not legalistic holiness, but true holiness. You know, historians believe this about the John Wesley revivals in England. That John Wesley's revival in England saved England from the same reign of terror with the guillotine that all took place across the channel in France in the French Revolution. And the reason they believed that his revival saved England because when they stopped through their gin away and they quit going to brothels and they quit fighting and brawling and kept, uh, quit abusing their families and became responsible workers, their character elevated in due time their economic status and they walked in a level of blessing so much that Wesley thought they would lose their heart for God because they were materially distracted. But, but they, they, raised the, they raised them up, righteousness did. And so here's a, here's a financial plan for you. If you want to have wealth, I mean enough to save and enough to give. That's what I define wealth is. It's real simple. Act like a Christian. Add 30, 40, 50 years to that, acting like a Christian, and you'll have some wealth. Anything? What else? That's it. Remember I first, before I got married, an old man brought me into his house right before, about a week before I got married, showed me all his furniture. He said, Bob, look at this. Look at my house. Look at this. He looked at me and says, it took my whole life to possess this. I'll never forget that. It took my whole life to possess this. And so there was a righteousness. There was a blessing. there's a joy. there's a celebration. there's happiness. I loved youth camp when I was a youth pastor. At the end of youth camp, all the kids had just gotten rid of all their stuff and they were just running around like giddy little children, just giggling and laughing and They were just free, they were free again. There's a blessing to repentance that we wanna embrace. So the question is, why is God so faithful, Bob? Because listen, Bob, God also judges. Yes, God also judges, but I would have you remember the prayer of Habakkuk that we just prayed. In wrath, remember mercy. There is judgment, but for restoration restoration and so the reason why god is faithful to you and i and he will revive the church and i'm optimistic about him reviving the church is this is that our hearts can drift but god has made a covenant not just this is his nature he's made a covenant i'm going to go deeper with that today to draw us back to himself this is what psalm 119 verse 88 is all about revive me According to your loving kindness. And I'm going to focus on this word loving kindness. Now what he's not saying is revive me because you're a nice guy. Revive me because you're just good natured. Revive me because you're just a teddy bear. Revive me because you're not upset with me. It's revived me because of your loving kindness. And, and, and to understand what loving kindness is, we're going to break that down so we're understanding what even the psalmist is saying here. So that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. So let's talk about this word, loving kindness. Remember that song? You know, your loving kindness is better than life. I'm bringing old school today. This is old school. <laughs> your loving kindness is better than life. Okay, how many remember that song? Okay, if you do, you're over... 50 years old. All right. (laughs) Loving kindness, the Hebrew, is chest. And this particular word, as you look it up, is used as devotion, loyal deeds, favor kindness, loyalty, and mercy. It has this connotation of, of not just, you know, God just having just moved in his heart to have pity. But it goes deeper than that is that God has, is a covenant making and a covenant keeping God. And we, we, and, and because He's a covenant making and a covenant-keeping God, when we drift, His heart has a covenant to revive us. Now we see this in God's promise to King David. So I'm going to take you to Second Samuel chapter 7: 14 to 17. Are you traveling with me here? You're with me. So this promise is what God gave to David, speaking about David's offspring, and he says this, I will become his father, and he will become my son. Talking about the sons, the grandsons, the great-grandsons, the great-great-grandsons of David who would be sitting on the throne of Israel. I will become his father. He'll become my son when he sins. <laughs> yeah, I can see the future a little bit. There's going to be some problems. When he sins, I will correct him with the rod of men and with the wounds inflicted by human beings. One of the ways that God gets my attention, one of the ways God gets your attention, is that sometimes we receive the rod of men and the affliction of circumstances. Has anybody had God speak to you that way? (laughs) Now, uh, now we, we, we are sons and daughters of God by faith in Christ. We have received the spirit of adoption, Romans 8 says. Not to fear, but to cry out, Papa, Daddy, God. But as sons and daughters, occasionally we need a spanking. I don't know, we don't use that word anymore. Time out. <laughs> we need a time out. And we can't play with our gummy bears anymore, or whatever it is. There's a discipline that takes place. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, if that doesn't happen in my life and your life, we really don't have legitimate faith. You guys are so quiet today. This is such a soft word, I know. But, the, but, but it's part of the mark of sonship. Right. I remember my, my first two and a half years as a Christian was not fun. It started off great. I mean, it was like, wow, like I, I've arrived in heaven, you know. Jesus did. When he got filled with the Spirit, touched with the Spirit, you know, I got the audible voice of God and then he was led into the wilderness to fast for 40 days because he went through some hard times. And so I started going through all sorts. I was like, the rod of man and the affliction of human beings came on me like no one's business. I mean, I, I can't begin to tell you how much trouble I got in as a teacher, how many things I had to deal with with my anger. I was coaching football. For, I'll give you one story. I've never told this story to you. I got mad at my linemen. I was coaching high school football and I, I pulled a drill out just because I was upset with him and the drill was an unwise drill. I never did it again. And a kid, kid got hit and was paralyzed for two days. I remember being in my church's little Bible study and weeping and wailing and I paralyzed this kid in the hospital and he, he revived and he walked again but he couldn't feel his legs for two days. And I had situations after situations after situations where God was just like, Bob, I'm dealing deep with this thing. I didn't like where I lived. I didn't like the church. I didn't like the weather. I didn't like anything. I, life was not good. I kept getting rebuked. My landlord rebuked me. Everyone rebuked me. I lived in the land of rebuke. <laughs> and then, when we went through our first prophetic commission, Sue so and I, I'll never forget the great prophet Leonard Fox from San Bernardino, California. He kind of talked like this. If you guys remember him? His first words were so kind to me. What about the beatings? What about the whippings, the scourgings? You want, when I, you're that my hand was on you, and I was disciplining you. Such a wonderful, warm word. <laughs> he said, you humbled yourself under the mighty hand of God. Now God's going to raise you up. Everything he prophesied came to pass. But it was. It was kind of like, Bob, I'm going to give you a hug. All right, now to the witch head. Now, why did God do that with me? That's between me and God, eternity. I don't even, can't even answer that question. But I knew it was the dealings of God. And sometimes, because of God's covenant commitment to us, he's got to bring some dealings to bring us in alignment. And then he goes on to say, but my loyal love will not be removed from him as I removed it from Saul. Why did he remove it from Saul? Because there was no heart in Saul for God. He didn't desire God's relationship. He didn't desire God's presence. He had not an ounce of repentance in him. He had a covenant thing going with David and there was something in the heart of David's sons whom I removed before you. Then he says, your house and your kingdom will stand before me, notice this, permanently. And your dynasty will be permanent. Nathan told David all these words that were revealed to him. Now, now, Let's take us now. Now we are, you know, let me just say this. Why would God discipline David's sons like that? Because of his loyal commitment to David's son by covenant. This is, why, this is why this verse says what it is. But I will not remove my loyal love from him, nor be unfaithful to my promise. I will not break my covenant or go back on what I promised. So you can rest assured today, you may say, I am a present-day rascal, God bless you, but there is a God who so loves you that he's covenantly committed to going after you. So we now are the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the King, Jesus Christ, the King who is a God-man, and is greater than King David because he's not just a man. He is the God-man. He's God himself who became man. And as, But as man in his humanity, Jesus comes from the natural family line of David. And he's the fulfillment of this promise. And we, by faith, are in a covenant with Jesus who is of the lineage of David and who has this covenant to him that we just read about. And so that covenant is to us. There's a covenant commitment of God to you. So you can try and run, but I will say this, you're gonna have someone chasing you out of a covenant commitment. The church can get wobbly and God will have to revive her. Now let me just say this. The church has had its mixture. The church has had its heresies. The church has had its spiritual abuse. The church has had its materialism. The church has had its swindlers and its flim-flam men and its charlatans. The church has had its hucksters. The church has had its immorality. The church has had its greed. The church has even committed murder. But. It's his church. And he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus will only build his church to something greater because in his heart and his purpose, he will not defeat Satan himself. He will defeat Satan through his church. God will put Satan under your feet shortly. And so God must revive it. God can't let it just slip down. I don't believe in this hang on till Jesus comes mentality. I believe in occupy till he comes mentality. I believe in a victory until he comes mentality. World War II really was decided on June 6, 1944, on the beaches of Normandy. But after that, the bloodiest battles in World War II were fought. And so we got some wars to fight. we got some setbacks. And we got some casualties. we got some things we got to work through. But God will revive his church. He will move it forward and he will revive it because he has a covenant commitment to us. Now, you're probably thinking, Bob, can a believer resist grace? I'm going to get juicy here on doctor. Touch some sacred cows. When we talk about Grace. I'm not talking about God's unmerited favor. I'm talking about God powerfully working in you and God powerfully working in me. Can I resist that? God working. Well, let's look at the book of Revelation. The church of Ephesus, one of the seven churches. Now, the, now I'm going to talk a little bit about these seven churches today very briefly here. I'll bring this thing to a close quicker than you think. But the book of Revelation starts off in Revelation 1, 2, and 3, where Jesus is addressing seven churches churches of Asia minor, churches that John actually had relationship with. John didn't necessarily plant all of them, but he had relationship apostolically with them. And Jesus is addressing these churches. We have a lot to learn about Jesus' heart for the church and how Jesus looks and examines his church even today from these three chapters. And he's talking his church called the Church of Ephesus, and he says this, Yet I hold this against you. They had done a lot of great things. He said, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. There's something that is missing from you that you had before. Consider how far you have fallen. They had drifted from where they were. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, what's the lampstand? Well, the Bible interprets itself here. Revelation chapter 1, I think it's verse 14. He says the seven stars in his hands were the seven messengers, which is the leadership of the church. And the seven lampstands were the seven churches of Asia Minor. It's very clear, it interprets itself. A lamp burns in those days with oil. Oil speaks to the presence of the Holy Spirit, it's, it's God's favor. It's God's Holy Spirit here. It's God's work of His Spirit in us that causes us to be the light of the world and shine. So when He says, I'm going to remove your lampstand, I'm going to pull out. I'm going to remove my favor. I'm going to remove my presence. And just like the book of Ezekiel starts, where God removes Himself from the temple, God's going to remove Himself from this church. It's a very, very stern warning. Very, very stern warning. Book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, these are Jewish Christians that are under persecution, throwing away their faith and renouncing Christ. He says this, so see it to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. You know, here's the issue. It goes on to say, as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The problem with sin It's not like a sin causes you to be gone and separated from God and your soul cast in some darkness in eternity. The problem with sin is that sin will eventually destroy faith. It's like a cancer. If it's not dealt with, it will destroy faith. We have come to share in Christ. Listen to this. We've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. We've got to hold that conviction firmly to the end. And sin, if I don't examine it and, and make a break with it, will eventually tear into my faith, which can lead me to a place of unbelief. God requires more than motion. So I'm going to look at these seven churches real quick here. I'm not going to talk about what they did well and what they did bad, but I'm going to go to the five of these. Two of these churches are commended. Five of these churches receive a rebuke of correction and adjustment. I'm looking at the five things to be corrected and adjusted about without naming the specific things in it. It's just this. this is how Jesus, who's the same today as he was yesterday, how he will examine you and me City Harvest Church or any church in Clark County or in the United States of America or anywhere around the world. What did he say to Ephesus? He says, I hold this against you, you have forsaken the love you had at first. So the Ephesians had forsaken something. That's all I want to say. They had forsaken something as God's people. Then the next church that we're going to look at is the is the church of of uh, Pergamum and he says this nevertheless I have a few things against you these are among you there are those among you who hold to the teaching of so the problem with Pergamum is that they were holding on to a teaching that Jesus didn't want them to hold on to so well it doesn't matter sometimes I say you know I'm concerned about what they're teaching well Bob Bob you know Jesus is grace and love and he just kind of works on that it's just you know don't get all uptight about what they're teaching right? Well, he seemed to be a little uptight about what the Pergamum church was teaching. The next church that Jesus is dealing with here, the church of Thyatira, he says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate. Of course, this is the whole Jezebel scripture, which basically was this. You're tolerating immorality and you're tolerating idolatry. You're tolerating these things. You're tolerating a false spirit, false ministry. Something's taking place of me and you're allowing immorality to take place. Then he goes to the church of Sardis. He says, you have a reputation of being alive, Well, you are dead. Wake up. Everybody just say, wake up. Wake up. up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. My God. They weren't completely obedient to Christ. They thought they were awake. They were just going through the motions. They needed to wake up. They didn't realize how out of touch they were. Of course, it goes on. There's the church of Laodicea. This is the big one everyone just loves. Know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold nor hot. I wish you were either... Or the other, so because you are lukewarm, in other words, I want some intensity in you, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. It's such a comforting thing. Have that in your refrigerator for all your guests to see. <laughs> they had no focus. They had no motor. They had no drive. They had no intentionality. So the questions that we need to ask ourselves are things like, where have I forsaken something? What have I tolerated in my life? What teaching have I embraced? Where do I need to wake up? Where am I lacking intentionality and focus on on doing what God's called me to do in my relationship with Him? Just asking the questions. I'll ask more in a few seconds here. Bob, does the church need to be revived? These statistics are about two years old. just saw after I made this PowerPoint a whole new set by George Barna. But you were even scarier in this statistic, so I'm going to tell you tears ago just to give us a little bit of hope, and not leave you too down here. Thirty-one percent of Americans are practicing Christians. Now that means they attend church once a month, and they believe that they take the relationship with God seriously. That's what a practicing Christian is. Forty-one percent of Americans are post-Christians. Basically, forty-one percent of the people in America have departed from the Christian faith. And they're no longer looking at it as a direction in their life. 39% of followers of Christ do not believe they should share their faith. They don't believe they should share their faith because it's wrong to impose my thinking on somebody else. In coercion, I would agree with that, but not in persuasion. Okay, there's a difference for me to persuade and for me to coerce. We're called to share our faith, we're called to maybe win them over in conversation. That's the price we pay. Timothy Keller was, was paid a dear price because people love to hear him speak in New York, but he's an apologist. He's moving them to something. And when he stands for absolute truth, the people thought he was so cool, they don't think he's cool anymore because I'm trying to persuade you to Christ. Persuade you to Christ. You have 53% of followers of Christ believe you can be saved by... Good deeds. These are that's. This is very concerning. Saved by good deeds. That means the gospel, the merits of Christ, the cross are lost in theology, in their mind. Fifty-one percent of churchgoers have never heard of the Great Commission. That's God's heart. That's God's heart. of practicing Christians who take their Christian faith seriously possess a biblical worldview about the nature of God, nature of man, plan of God, you know, the the, the personality of Satan, the works of Christ on the cross and who Jesus is and what he's done for us, the church, his second coming, morality. Only 17% of practicing Christians possess a really true biblical view. And this is from Barna, who who would probably allow for some latitude in some areas? 54% of practicing Christians believe there's no way of knowing about the meaning of life. In other words, we're kind of just stuck. What we really need in, in revival is we really need a, re- a Bible revival. A Bible revival. There is a meaning to life. This book that Jesus through this book saved my life, Amen. saved many of you here. Its wisdom works. Forty percent of born again again adults believe that Satan is a is a real force. That means half of believers, or forty six percent, I should say. That I, I read that wrong actually. Yeah, forty percent is correct here. About almost half of us don't believe in evil entities that the rest of the world encounters all the time as part of their worldview. We live in a materialistic worldview and we don't see what the rest of the world sees. Forty-six percent of born-again adults believe in absolute moral truth. In other words, they believe in relativism. Relativism is this it is this. It's truth and morality exist in the context of culture. And when culture shifts that morality and ethics shift with that culture. It's only as true as it is in the context of that historical period. So that means truth and morality will constantly be shifting. Now, I want to say this. It doesn't mean that in this period morality was complete. So I think morality can be added onto, okay, and developed and broadened. Our eyes can be opened to things. But... It doesn't like this was absolute truth 100 years ago, but it's not an absolute truth now. Let me say this about God. He's real old. man. God's old. <laughs> I mean, old. Let me say this about God. God is old school, and God is new school. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. So we can't just take all these and let's just, you know, go back to that old time religion, go that old time religion. No, because God says I'm going to do a new thing, but with an old school theology, with an old school compliance to who I am. For I am the Lord; I do not change. He's old school. Even it's funny in the world of physical fitness. I mean, they're bringing back so many old-school things. I work out with medicine balls. you probably seen a guy with his, you know, with his tank top and his striped short back in 1900, you know? They're, they're now popular again. Kettlebells that go all the way back to the Grecian games used by the Soviet Union for 100 years of the physical fitness program are now the, the core of every health club in America. You know, we've got we to gotta bring out of a treasure chest both old and new. But we can't lose the foundation of old. So questions to ponder. Worship team, you can come on up here. One. What was I like after I, I first encountered Jesus? What was I like? Now I know one of the problems with my memory and your memory is I have a lot of wonderful thoughts about myself back then that are probably not true. I probably have a skewed view because our memory seems to gloss over a lot of things and kind of color up and embellish some other positive things that may not be there. However, there was something fresh when we started this journey. Have I regained it? Another question. If Jesus came to me now, like he did to the seven churches of Asia Minor, would there be any words like, I have a few things against you? Would there be any words like, Bob, you're doing this good. Bob, you're doing this good. Bob, I appreciate this. Bob, but I, I have this one thing against you. Well, Jesus does anything against me. He just loves me. Everything I do is right. <laughs> it's not true. That's why we do 360 examinations with our teams and stuff. Because I may think I'm doing great, but the team says, no, you're really frustrating us in certain areas. What would Jesus say to me? That's between you and God. The third is this. Do I believe that God can do an intense work in my life? Do I believe that God can do an intense work in my church? Do I believe that God can do an intense work in my family? Do I believe that God can do an intense work in the nation in this season of my life? Where's my optimistic valve? What I'm trying to say, it was a hard word today, but it's like, do this, take this pill, go on this diet, you're going to get these results. We're going to get gladness and joy. And the lame will walk, and the blind will see, and the tongues will be loosed. And where jackals are hanging out, it's going to be a swimming pool. Here, okay, where there's no water, there's going to be a bubbling well. Come on, there's going to be gladness and joy and restoration, but we, the way to this thing is the way of holiness. And we have to examine ourselves without one finger pointing at somebody else to say, Jesus, where am I?